people, what is a healthy church? Or better yet, what does a church need to do to be healthy? Some would say that a church needs to have dozens of ministries and activities for everyone in the family. Some would say that a church that isn't growing numerically isn't a healthy church. In every community like ours, all across the entire country, we would find churches that are defining health like this. Pastors who feel pressured to grow their church adopt methods from business and marketing gurus in order to get people to come. But the sad truth is that very few will ever see this come to reality. But in a world that esteems growth and profits and in bank accounts, where else does a church go to measure their success? After all, the easiest way to gauge whether or not a church is successful is through numbers. The best way to find whether or not the pastor is effective is looking at numbers, right? Well, for four weeks, we're pausing our normal preaching schedule to talk about the church. Now, we'll still look at, at, at passages of Scripture verse by verse and, and dive deep into those expositionally. I, we're still going to do that. But these four weeks are aimed specifically at what the church is. What's our calling? In other words, why do we gather? How do we grow? And what do we do to go? And as we talk about what the church is, it's first important to define it. It's easy to have a conversation with someone, but often we use the same words, but we have different meanings. And so there's difficulties there in communication. So what are some definitions or explanations of what the church is? Well, first, many would say that the church is a building. We come to church. We do ministry in the church. This building that I stand in this morning, this is church. But there are other definitions of the church. The, the term church could refer for, to Christians for all time. Every Christian that's ever been is part of the church, the big C church. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus came to die for the church. This makes sense to us because we as individuals are one body. Have not yet been born in the image of God, but we're now recreated in the likeness of Christ. And while those definitions fit, what most people talk about when they talk about the church is what I'm focusing on for the next four weeks is the local assembly, the local church. It's not just a building, but what happens inside the building. See, our, our church family was here long before any of us were alive. And some people in our church family remember what church life was like before even this building was built. So this morning when I talk about the church, I primarily mean the gathered assembly. Now the word church is the Greek word ekklesia, which can describe a, a local congregation or it can describe Christians everywhere. And out of the 114 times this is used in the New Testament, 109 specifically refer to a local gathering, an assembly. A, a, a group of believers that have covenanted together to serve one another, to glorify God together. And so this is what I intend to dive into as we study what the church is. 
A building is a building, and we know that a church doesn't even need one to exist. Likewise, even though their contributions in history are, are important, most Christians that have come before us are not remembered by us. Our focus in this passage and in the next three weeks is the local assembly. We're not talking about the big C church. We're not talking about a building. We're talking about a group of people who have united together. Now, what does God expect of us when we unite together as a local church? But before I even answer that, let's answer this question. Why do we gather? What happens inside of our assembly that's different from other groups? What makes us different from a nonprofit? See, we try to do our best to help those in need, but so do food pantries. We teach, but libraries and schools do the same thing. See, what makes us unique is not so much in what we do, but why we do it. What is our motivation behind it? Why does God tell us to do these things? When we help people, it's not just to be nice. It's wonderful to care for others, but we're honest with them. We have a reason for helping you. It's not to make ourselves feel good. It's not to have a better life. See, the church exists to glorify God, and God is glorified in us when we are celebrating, proclaiming, and living the gospel. Now, I can say that to you all day long, but you probably want some evidence. Let's look at our text today. These verses give us the example of what a local church should do and what a church should be. I want to study this passage and compare it to what we are. And how we do things. And ask the question constantly, do we meet the standards set forth in Scripture and that we see in the early church? So would you read with me today, Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles'. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In verse 42, we see four things for practices that the church did in their life together. But before we look at those four practices, I want to stress that the people in Acts 2 in this church were believers. They were Christians. The common theme that we see throughout the New Testament is that the local church is made up of Christians, those who have recognized their sin, hated it, and then turned to Christ for forgiveness. Now the idea, though, of the local church has become something other than what we see in Scripture. For many, it's no different than an evangelistic event. Churches have centered their purpose around getting more people to come, and their gatherings have been designed to appeal to those who are not Christians. Now, on the surface, that sounds great, doesn't it? 
We, we, we know that Christ has called us to share the gospel with the whole world. We know that God has a plan for that. And so shouldn't we want to, and shouldn't we desire more people to come to know Christ? Well, in a few weeks, we're going to look at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And we'll see that that is our calling to go and make disciples of all nations. So if that's our calling from Jesus, shouldn't we make our service and ministries more appealing to those who aren't Christians? Well, this passage, Acts chapter 2, shows us that the worship service exists for those who are already in Christ. The local church exists to bring God glory through the building up of believers in order to, for them to be trained and sent out into the world to make disciples as evangelists. The church is not an evangelistic crusade. The church is not your weekly therapy appointment that's designed to give you motivation and encouragement. That should happen when you gather together, but that is not the main focus. Now, some listening to me right now may be confused. You may be thinking, well, you preach the gospel every week. You, you proclaim this. You invite people to, to, to repent and to trust in Christ. You even talk to people in our church or people who are here in, a, in the assembly who are not believers. Yes, I do that. I try my best to be aware of people who may be visiting our church who are not Christians. But that's not my focus. Why not? Simply put, we don't see that in Scripture. That's marketing. We give people what they want or we tone down the message in order that more people will come and hopefully trust in Jesus however we present him. It's not the Bible. But many of us have been brought up inside of a different view of what the church is and what the church does. Now think about this. The primary problem that churches who focus on the outsider, and by the way, that's not my term, that's the Apostle Paul's term in 1 Corinthians 14. He calls people outsiders, people who are outside of the Christian faith. The primary problem that churches who focus on the outsider have is what happens when they come to know Christ. If, if our entire worship service and our, all of our ministries are designed to appeal to people who don't know Jesus, what happens when those people finally come to know Jesus? They'll be starved. They'll go hungry. They won't be fed. They'll never grow in their faith. They'll be stuck in a faith that's a mile wide and an inch deep, unable to answer the difficult questions they face throughout their life. A church that caters to those who do not know Christ will create a church that doesn't value Christ. The church may grow, and that may look successful to people on the outside, but it's nothing more than spiritual smoke and mirrors. These practices that we see are found in churches that value the truth of God's word, and that also value the local church in the life of the Christian. It's essential. Now hear me on this. These are the basics for what a church should do when we gather together. God has given us the standard by which we are to worship him. The gathered church worshiping Jesus should never discount the presence of outsiders, but the church is to be believers worshiping God. Now I believe this with all my heart. 
that, that if we're faithfully preaching the scripture, if we're faithfully singing songs that are faithful to the Bible, if we have solid fellowship, that someone who's not a believer will be uncomfortable in our services. Why? Because they will see their sin, their wretchedness in light of the perfection of God, and they will be uncomfortable. In other words, if someone who isn't a Christian is perfectly comfortable in a church's gathering, the church is probably missing the mark. And that standard is not to merely attract people or to be a, pos a, a popular destination in people's spiritual journeys. Instead, the gathering of the local church is for Christians to do these things as an act of worship to the Creator. So let's look at verse 42 and see exactly what the church does. First thing, there's teaching and preaching going on. The apostles would teach doctrine to the church, examining what the, the old Hebrew scriptures said about the coming of Christ. Teaching and preaching has always been essential for the local church. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy this. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. A church that doesn't value preaching and teaching is in danger of no longer being a church. But something else to consider this, and, and maybe you've never considered this, is that the songs that we sing fit into this category. The songs that we sing must line up with what the apostles taught. In Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, Paul says that the church should sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now the question then comes is why do we sing? Maybe the only place that you sing together is at a concert. Well, we certainly know that the church isn't a concert, contrary to what many places are doing right now. But have you ever wondered why we sing? God says that we must. But we also sing because it helps us to remember the truths of Scripture. It remembers doctrine and truth. See, each song that we sing here... At this church, at FBA, every song that we sing has been thought through and analyzed to make sure that it's easy enough for the church to sing congregationally, that it glorifies the Lord, and that it teaches us something. We want to make sure that the lyrics are gospel-centered, Christ-focused, and filled with teaching that lines up with what we see from the apostles. We cannot fall into the trap that sees music in the church as a preparation for the sermon. The songs we sing are teaching us the deep truth of God. Does the song teach us? Does it encourage us to look to Christ? 
Does it remind us of our own sinfulness and then the grace of God? Those things teach us and they matter greatly. So teaching and preaching are essential for the spiritual development of a local church. We also see that songs we sing are essential as well. And that leads us to the second practice that the early church did. They fellowshiped. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The idea that someone can be a Christian apart from the fellowship of a local church is foreign to the New Testament. It's nowhere in the Bible. Those in the church in Acts 2 were devoted to one another. They knew all about the people in their assembly. They knew the sins that others dealt with, and they knew how to encourage one another in the faith. And this assumes that they were spending time together, that they were around each other regularly. You can't be known if you make yourself hidden. Hebrews 10 says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, individualism has made us think that we can live the Christian life on our own, that we don't need to submit to one another, that we don't need to confess to one another, that we don't need to hear the biblical preaching or, or, or the music and, and experience the fellowship. That's not found in Scripture. There's nowhere to have accountability outside of the local church. There's no way to find this comfort outside of the local church. There's no way to practice church discipline outside of the local church. The church in Acts 2 had what we all and when I say we, I mean every church needs to have here and now. Well, the third thing the church did is that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. Why? You just talked about fellowship. Well, breaking of bread to us today is sitting at a table and eating. Well, that's kind of fellowship, isn't it? See, why would Paul say fellowship and then right after that say the breaking of bread? This statement is not talking about fellowship. It's not talking about sitting around a table and just eating dinner. The statement is saying this. They were participating in communion every time they gathered. Communion is a time to examine our hearts and confess our sins to God and to one another. And communion is part of the service that we get to do that. Now, I know the Bible doesn't give an exact command for how often we are to partake in communion. But I think there's a really good case right here that the early Christians were doing it each week or at least every time they would gather together. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, first, it's a blessing. We get to reflect on the gospel of Christ and what he's done for us. Second, it's a time to confess our own sin. James 5 says that we should confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Communion as part of the worship service is a built-in time to do that. Where we get to examine our hearts and we confess our sins to our brothers and our sisters. Regular communion also does something else. 
When someone is placed under church discipline, when someone has done something that, that has caused the church to excommunicate them, to, to, to force them to leave the church fellowship, they can still come and worship. They, they can still show up and, and sing the songs and hear the sermon, but the one thing that they cannot do is partake in the Lord's table. They can't. So as elders and leaders of the church would prevent that person from coming and partaking. See, this is why having regular communion is so helpful for us because we get to see the fruits of church discipline played out. We get to see the seriousness of someone's sin when we prevent them, when we fence the table by preventing them from coming and taking communion. It's a time for us to reflect and confess. And waiting long periods of time between doing this is unhealthy. God has given us this practice and it seems like the early church did it often. Most likely each time that they gathered together. Well, the fourth thing that the church did when they gathered was pray. When we gather together here at FBA, we have multiple instances of prayer Sometimes those prayers are long, sometimes they're short, sometimes they're impromptu, sometimes they're prepared beforehand. But they all serve a purpose to model prayer to the congregation, and more importantly, they are petitions to God to help us in our times of need. Many Christians have times when they pray by themselves, but many churches don't spend time in corporate prayer. Just like how individualism has infected the fellowship of the church, it's also damaged the church's corporate prayer time. When we begin our service with a call to worship, we pray that God will bless what we're about to do. We have a pastoral prayer where one of the elders will pray over a, a specific ministry, a topic, a need, or a local church close by. We pray before the sermon that God will be glorified in the preaching of his word. We, we pray after the sermon that God will work in the hearts of the people. Don't you think that the early church, facing persecution that never seemed to end, don't you think they would have relied on prayer to sustain them? They faced daily persecution, so they asked God for strength and for stamina to endure such hardships. Now, some may wonder why we have multiple instances of prayer throughout our service. And my response is not to be rude, but my response is, I don't think we even pray enough. Prayer is the powerhouse of the church, and that doesn't just mean individual prayer. A church that prays fervently together is united against the flesh and is united with Christ. Now, a church that does these things will be a faithful and healthy church. In verse 44, we see that the people were together and they had all things in common. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to be unified? Now, I'm not talking about uniformity. That's where everyone believes exactly the same way. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying unity, where we're all moving in the same direction. We're all walking together. We're united in the essentials of the faith. Now, what is a tangible outcome of this kind of unity? Look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This doesn't mean that they created a commune. This doesn't advocate for what we would term today as communism. Instead, the church was a family. 
And you know this in your own family. When one of your family members is financially in a financially difficult situation, someone who has the means will step up and help. Get them out of that bad spot. But the church does the same thing. And the church also meets spiritual needs as well. It's physical and spiritual together. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The church was known for taking care of one another. They made sure that everyone had enough and their stomachs, but they also met in the temple daily. So they were working on the physical needs and the spiritual needs. They went to the temple to pray and to share the gospel with those who were there too. They did this daily. They shared their lives with one another. What is the pattern for this in our life? Well, to be honest, in a perfect world, we would all live in the same neighborhood, the same community. We'd all live within walking distance so that we could eat meals together every night, that we could spend time together every day in fellowship and in worship, that we could spend time together every day going on the streets and knocking on doors and sharing the gospel. We would know one another. We would know those sins and those difficulties that we all face. We would have that kind of fellowship. But we know that technology has allowed us to live further and further away from one another. Have you ever thought about how progress in our world has made spiritual life as a church much more difficult? It's great that you can watch a, a video of a sermon that you missed. It's great that you can talk to your family that live hours and hours away but the truth of the matter is that does not foster community. Looking at a camera and then you looking at a screen is not what community is. Community is gathering together. Is being part of each other's lives. So you may be wondering where I'm going with all this. Am I trying to send subtle messages to First Baptist Alcoa? To address things that I see as deficient in our fellowship. Well, yes, I am. But I'd be saying the same thing to any other church that I preach in this morning. Why? Because every single church has problems and deficiencies. Every single church needs to be reminded of their calling and their purpose for being. See, we may have less problems than many other churches. And I believe that we do. But as long as we have people involved, there will be problems. It's called sin. No matter what we do, we carry that around with us. So please don't think I'm preaching about how to be a perfect church. There are no perfect churches, but there are churches that are healthy and growing spiritually. We can't be perfect as individuals, and we can't be perfect as a church, even though that's what God demands and deserves it's because our sin has prevented us from seeing that. And often what happens is that we recognize that we can't be perfect so that we, we, we end up trying to figure out a way to measure some kind of success. And the easiest way to do that is to say, well, numbers. Hey, attendance is going up. Giving is going up. Activities are going up. Ministries are going up. Building projects are going up. All of those things are advancing, so that must mean that we're successful. 
church can have a thousand ministries and still not be healthy. Because a church that's forgotten its main purpose and shifted its focus to numbers is in danger of no longer being a church. Listen, my metric is not success. And, and even you'll look at verse 47 and say, wait a minute, the, the, the numeric success is kind of what we're seeing in this passage. Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This has led people to think that if we just follow this formula, or some kind of formula, that God will bless us and that God will bring more people to us. My metric of success is not a bigger budget or more people coming through the doors. There's a church right now in Houston, Texas that claims 50,000 members and they don't preach the gospel. Are they successful? They preach health, wealth, prosperity, that Jesus is your way to those things. But they don't preach the gospel that we're all sinners and that Jesus is the only solution to our problems. They don't teach that Jesus is the only way to God and that every other path leads to destruction. Instead, they talk about money, living a better life, how to be happy in the here and now. Many people would say they're successful. Millions and millions of dollars come into this place. Some say they're successful. I say they're not even a church. So how do we define what makes a church healthy if we're not paying attention to metrics of numbers and budgets and giving? We look to Scripture. Is the church focused on doctrinal gospel preaching and teaching? Does the church emphasize right theology and right practice? Does the church have biblical fellowship? Does the church follow the biblical mandate on communion? Does the church follow through on that with appropriate church discipline? Does the church pray together? A church that can answer yes to those questions is a healthy church. My focus has not been and it will never be numerical growth. My focus is on the gospel in every aspect of ministry inside of our church family. Listen, don't misunderstand. I hope that people come. I pray that more and more people come to this church. I, I pray that, that, that our building is so full that we have to start new churches. I pray for those days. Not for success. Not so that I can have a name. Not so that we can continue to build and have this, this kingdom that we've built for ourselves. That's not my interest. I want people to come because they can't get enough of gospel-centered preaching and teaching. I want people to come because we sing songs that teach us the deep truths of God's word. But I would be failing in my duties to you and to God if getting more people here was my focus. My hope is that our focus continues to be Christ-centered and that we don't get wrapped up in what the world values, numbers, metrics, and money. My prayer is that we seek to be a healthy church that cares about the only measurement that really matters, faithfulness to God and to his word. Would you pray with me?